Morning, Grace. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, my name is Dehan, one of the pastors here. It's a privilege to be in front of you this morning. Pastor Brett has a saying that I've come to really own. He says, you find your people, then you find your calling. And it didn't take us long. We've only been here actually less than two years, and we know without a shadow of a doubt, you are our people. So <laughs> it's great to be a part of this family. Yeah, it's great. And that might strike you as, as a little strange being Korean American. I don't look like, you know, all y'all, but, but, <laughs> but now I, we've come to so identify with this house, with the people, and with the values that when we go into an all-Asian setting, which is where we used to minister, I feel weird. I'm like, this is not my people anymore. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm half joking, but um, <laughs> it really feels that way, just being a part of this diverse house and the things that we value and the kind of church that we've built here. I am so, so grateful God has me here uh, in your midst. And sure enough, as we found our people, we've definitely found our calling. And you might have heard that um, this summer, Grace Covenant is sending us out, my family as well as the core team, to start a new church called Renew Church L.A., in Los Angeles. Now, some of you, thank you. Some of you might have come from the West Coast. You at least know about Los Angeles. Um, but it's a city in desperate need of Jesus. There's good churches out there, but not churches like Grace. And so we're excited to take the anointing of Grace out to a city that desperately needs Jesus. We'll need your partnership the whole way, your prayers, your gifts, um, even some of you going with us. And you'll find out more about that in just a bit. But let me get to today's word. When I had the opportunity to take this pulpit, and it's a huge privilege, I asked if I could preach on Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. Not only is it one of my favorite passages, you actually heard Rachel Ong read a part of it, um, but it's the missional statement, it's the foundational passage for this church plant. And if you want to know what we're going to do in Los Angeles, it's in these very verses. But more than just for the city and for, for the church I'm planting, this is the passage Jesus identifies with for his own mission. In Luke chapter 4, he gets up in front of his home church, his home synagogue, and he opens up to this very word, and he, and he reads it, and he says, this is why I've come to the planet. It's being fulfilled right now in your midst through me. So this is Jesus' own mission statement, so I think it's important we read this. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 61. Uh, we'll be, read verses 1 through 4. The Word of God says this, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, restore the places long devastated, and they will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Love it. Notice the opening line. This is all pro prophetic words about the ministry of Christ. It says that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to pro proclaim what? Good news. He is filled with the Holy Spirit and anointed to do this one thing, which is to bring and proclaim good news. And that's what I want to do this morning. Very simple message. Why is the gospel good news? And you're wondering, that's your A game, Pastor Dion? You get this one shot at the pulpit. And you talk about something so basic. 
But, you know, a lot of us, and, and, and please forgive me, Elder Green, we would be more excited about the Redskins winning the Super Bowl than we would about, you know, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Who knows when the first thing will happen, but, you know, it... <laughs> It's a change of regime. Well, who knows? Who knows? We'll see. There's a lot of changes going on. Point being, um, we who've been around the gospel for a long time have forgotten, will very often forget how good that news really is. And that's a, that's a tragedy because this, that's Jesus' mission, to proclaim this good news. And so my message today is very simple. Why is the gospel good news? And it begins by understanding who the intended audience is. He's come to proclaim good news to the poor. So my first point the gospel's so good because the gospel welcomes us as we really are. As we really are. Now, just for a thought experiment, have you ever been in an environment where you were not welcome as you really are? I've been in a few places. One was a wedding where um, my good friend invited me. Now, my good friend's brilliant, one of the smartest people I've ever known. Graduated from Ivy League with honors. Then he went to an Ivy League law school and graduated with honors. And then if that wasn't enough, he went to an Ivy League business school and graduated with honors. This guy is stacked, okay? And he invites me to his wedding, and I get seated at a table, and within two or three people, in the, you know, you do the introductions around the circle, I'm realizing I am not supposed to be here. You know, he's Harvard uh, MBA, you know, Warden MBA, Harvard Law School, you know, a VP of this, hedge fund manager of that, and then it gets to me, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor. That's why I say, I'm a pastor, and just blank stares, blank faces, and we move right along. <laughs> and they tried to include me in the conversation, but there just wasn't a lot of relevance at that table. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't have the papers, I don't have the pedigree, I don't have the income level to really make any difference at this table. I feel really out of place. Could you imagine if our access to God was kind of like this, where depending on your pedigree, what papers you had, what ethnic background you came from, whether you knew all the obscure laws someone else knew about God, then you get a certain measure of him. Now, that's not just a thought experiment. That's how the ancient Jews really viewed their relationship to God, as a spiritual caste system. We're on the top rung, we're your, your Pharisees, your Sadducees, your Essenes, the religious elite. In the middle, you had your average Jewish man and woman, and towards the bottom, you had... The sinners, the people of ill repute, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the crippled, the diseased, and the Gentiles. And they were so on the spiritual margins that they could not even enter the temple because they're considered unclean. And I'm imagining to myself, what if I was on the wrong end of that whole scheme? What if I was one of the sinners? All I could do was look over the temple walls and see people enter in and thinking to myself, they're welcomed by God, but I'm not. The level of rejection and frustration and hopelessness you feel as you see God welcomes certain people and not others. But what I love about this passage, as, as Isaiah prophecies about what Jesus will do, is that the whole spiritual caste system is inverted so that the good news is going to the poor. And this passage breaks down what the poor really look like. It's not just the economic poor. They're included, but it's more to that. He says the poor are people who are brokenhearted. It means your heart is shattered into pieces because something has come against you emotionally, mentally, that's just rocked you and wounded you. How many of you have been brokenhearted before? You don't have to raise a hand. It's okay. It's all right. Just in your soul, raise a hand, okay? How many of you 
have been, the next thing is captivity and in prison. Now, the first category, captivity, is when you're in bondage to something or someone. And imprisonment means literally you're behind bars and chained by some kind of institutional prison. All that to say, Jesus has come to address oppression of all kind. Whether you're captive to addictions or to uh, some kind of sinful stronghold or to bitterness, or you are actually imprisoned by some systemic uh, government or force um, that's locked you down. It could be even Satan or sin. How many of you have held, been held captive before? A lot of us. And then another category of people, the mourners and the grievers. These are people who've lost something, and they're facing the anguish of loss. We've lost loved ones. We've lost dreams to failure. We've lost dignity to shame. There's a lot of things we've lost, and we grieve over it, don't we? And it, the, this prophetic word says that Jesus has come to address these very people with, with the good news, the brokenhearted, the kept people in captivity and in prison, people who are mourning and grieving. If you see this, the whole spiritual caste system is flipped upside down, and he is drawing near to the very ones who people thought had no business being close to God. And why is that? Because the good news is that God has come to save sinners. And these people on the bottom had no illusion about who they were. They knew and could very easily say, I'm screwed up, I'm a sinner. And therein lies the beauty and the power and the goodness of the gospel, that it's grace. It is unmerited favor. He comes to bring good news to those who don't deserve it. And that's why you are welcome to come in as you are. I know on a Sunday you you tend to kind of, you know, Take that shower, shave. You know, I've worn a suit today. I don't usually do this. You know, and so you might even think that, okay, God actually takes this into account that if I come scrubbed and well-dressed, I'll have greater access to God. I mean, it's kind of our human instinct to think that way. But notice who he's addressing the good news to. When the prodigal son came back home, he didn't take a shower. He came in the stink and the filth of the pigs. But the moment the son was willing to leave the pig pen and long for the father and physically turn from the pig pen and walk towards his father, his father runs, runs, and not just, you know, runs. To, it would be odd if you ran to him and stopped and said, well, I'm glad you finally made it back home. I've got a couple things for you to do, and you are on probation for a year. No, he throws his arms around that son and puts his lips on stinky flesh. That's the gospel. We are welcome to come as we are because it's good news to the poor. It's good news to sinners. I think for those of us who are Bible-believing, gospel-believing people, we need to hear this afresh. Because how often do we find ourselves in a pig pen? How often do we find ourselves having fallen back into that ditch of sin and the accuser loves to work off amnesia and say, hey, he doesn't love you anymore. That gospel you heard doesn't apply anymore. You are right back in that filth, and God rejects you. We need to hear this good news afresh, that he never chose us because we deserve. He never chose us because we have a righteous record. We don't. The best we can do are filthy rags to a righteous and holy God. He loves us simply because he loves us. It's a divine choice, which, which means if it's a divine choice, he can never unchoose it. Never. Romans 8 says that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which means nothing that we will ever do could make God love you any more 
than he does right now. Not greater achievement, not greater recognition, not greater beauty, nothing. And nothing you've ever done could make God love you any less. Not any sin, not any failure, not any regret. We don't deserve that kind of love, but that's what he chooses to give us. That's what's promised in this prophetic passage. And for those who listen right, it's not an invitation to go sin more. It's an invitation for prodigals to come back home in the condition we are and say, God, you welcome me as we are. Thank you, Jesus. Second reason why the gospel is so good is that the gospel invites us to a ridiculous exchange. Let me explain that. So the first reason the gospel is so good is because Jesus meets us at our point of brokenness. He welcomes us as we are. But as we can read this passage, he doesn't leave us where we are. He heals our brokenness. He sets us free from captivity. And he comforts those who are mourning. But the question is, is how? Simply by fiat, simply by declaration, by proclamation. It might seem like that because in the beginning it says, I've come to proclaim good news. But if you read carefully, and as you read the second half of verse 3, um, the prophet begins to give us visuals of how this is affected. And the first thing he describes is that um, Jesus will place a crown of beauty instead of your ashes on your head. But if you re- look at it carefully, it's, it's actually a crown of beauty in exchange for ashes. The Hebrew word for instead is takath. Takath. That sh- word shows up in, in, uh, in Genesis 22.13, where Abraham's about to kill his son. You guys know this story, right? God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son as a test of faith. And so Abraham brings up his son. He's about to kill him with a, uh, with a knife. And God, in that moment, uh, says, hey, there's a ram. Give the ram in exchange to Koth for your son. And that word shows up here. It's, it's a crown of beauty in exchange for ashes. In other words, Jesus takes off his own crown and puts it on your head and takes your ashes and puts it on his. There's a divine exchange going on because he, he doesn't just shower blessings on you. He needs to first remove the sin that's on your life. All of it, brokenheartedness, captivity, mourning, all of that's the fallout of sin. And sin, the Bible says, has to be atoned for. There's a price that has to be paid. It says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And you know, we know what that means. It's not just physical death, but eternal death, hell. But God does not want us to pay that price because he loves us. And so what he does is he has Jesus take on your condition, your guilt, your shame, your depravity, your brokenness, and go to the cross and die the death that you deserve and I deserve, which is why just a few chapters earlier in the same book in Isaiah, there's this prophetic word about Jesus. He took, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He takes our worst, and then he gives us his best in exchange. It's, it's an amazing, amazing, ridiculous exchange. It reminds me of an old skit that our youth group used to run every Good Friday, it's called the Ragman skit, and it's based on the story someone wrote on the Ragman. The Ragman is this, is this guy pushing a cart, peddling rags throughout the city in the streets and the alleyways. And he would go into the streets and alleys crying, new rags for old, new rags for old. 
And he would encounter people in various stages of brokenness. So the first person he encounters is a woman who's weeping into a rag and her shoulders are shuddering because she's so deep into her grief. And the ragman says, can I give you a new rag? And he hands her a new rag to which she puts on her face and suddenly she's healed. The grief is comforted. And he takes her wet rag and he begins to sob uncontrollably with the very grief she had. Then he goes to the next person. There's a young man leaning against the pole. His head is bandaged. There's blood dripping down. And, and the ragman comes and says, can I give you a clean rag? And he undoes the rag on, on the man, puts a new one on, and instantaneously this man is healed and whole and restored. And the ragman ties that bloody thing to his head, and he begins to bleed, and so forth and so on. He meets these people throughout the city, takes on their condition, and gives them clean rags that bring healing and freedom. And this, this ragman, so weighed down by the condition of the city that eventually he's so decrepit he dies in a trash pile, and then because it's an allegory, a few days later, he resurrects. And what I hated about that skid is they would always peg me as a ragman. So I'm walking around limping, crying, bleeding. It was a mess. But you get the story. And the reason I'm saying it is because it graphically illustrates the truth of the gospel. He didn't just sprinkle things out, you know, because he had an abundance of, you know, healing and freedom. He had to pay a severe price to give you what you have now. He became brokenhearted. He was abandoned by the Father. So you can experience healing. He was taken captive so we can be set free. He suffers abandonment and grief so we can experience his comfort. He wears our ashes so we get his crown of beauty. He wears our shabby robes of sin, of guilt, of depression, so we can wear his robe of righteousness and praise. He suffers the wrath of God so we can get his peace. He dies our death so we can have eternal life. None of it's fair. It's a, that's why I call it a ridiculous exchange. And what I love most is it's not just a historical fact he did once. For those of us who are Christians, we can look to the cross and remember that that exchange still happens. That I don't have to wear the guilt and the shame and the depression and all that that Satan tries to convince me that is mine to own. I can still offer up garbage and get his goodness because all of it's already been paid for, past, present, future. And to that, what can we say but thank you, Jesus? Thank you, Jesus, for this ridiculous exchange. You take my ashes, I get your crown. Thank you, Jesus. The last thing, the gospel is so good because it invites us to a new commission. Gospel meets us where we're at, invites us to a ridiculous exchange, and then gives us a new commission. Look at what happens in the second part of verse 3. It says that these very people are now established as oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And if you think about that, that's actually shocking because of where they begin. They're brokenhearted. They're in captivity. They're grieving and mourning. Not the most effective-looking bunch. You're not going to really build a church with these kinds of people. You, know, you don't want to build a movement with these kind of people. They're like broken reeds, and the first stiff wind that blows, you think they just snap off. It's unstable, messed up, weepy, you know, whatever. But these are the very people he raises up to be oaks of righteousness, symbols of strength, power, longevity, abundance, 
who display the splendor of God. I love the way God plans to save his world. He could have chosen handsome, strong, you know, charismatic people and say, represent me. But the world would just say, that makes sense. The bold and the beautiful. But God chooses the foolish to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong. And he calls the most broken people to represent him because against the backdrop of that brokenness, his love, his mercy, his goodness just jumps out. And the world can't just figure that out. They have to say, wow, there's something to this, something divine, something supernatural. So it doesn't surprise me that his plan to save the broken city in verse 4 involves the very same people Jesus ministers to in verse 1. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the grievers, the mourners. It says, for they, those people, will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined city that had been destroyed for generations. What I get from that is that your brokenness, translated through the gospel, becomes your commission. I have seen that time and time again. People who are in captive to uh, sexual abuse in their past, when the gospel comes and heals them, renews them, cuts away all the shame, the guilt, they become healers of those who are going through the same thing. People who've gone through divorce, as the gospel has come to bring healing to, to that broken relationship, they then become healers to those going through broken relationships. People who are in captivity to pornography, when the gospel comes and severs that and brings freedom, they become the liberators to those who are still in captivity to that, and so forth and so on. Your brokenness, your suffering, even your sinful strongholds, when they're taken through the gospel of Jesus, they become the very keys he uses to unlock the chains in the city. And that's an amazing thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ ensures that nothing is wasted of our lives. That everything that's come to us that we find painful has gone through God's redemptive hands first. And his promise is that he'll work all things for the good of those who love him, which means that none of it will be wasted. If you allow Jesus to take a hold of your brokenness, he'll make it your commission. Um, You guys have heard of Stradivarius violin. Even those who don't play it know because it's worth millions. Each one is worth millions of dollars. Um, they try to recreate that sound. To, to just, and it's just people haven't. They, they don't know how this guy did it hundreds of years ago. But recently there's been a breakthrough. They've discovered a process where you can take, you know, it's got to be good wood, but you can take this wood, you expose it to two fungi, funguses, right? And you allow the wood to rot, It's so counterintuitive, but you allow the wood to rot. And what the fungi does is that it gets into the wood and starts to eat it away and hollows it out. Each wood cell is hollowed out so that it becomes like a chamber. And when you make the violin out of that rotted wood, you create a sound just like Stradivarius. I think that's a telling picture of how the gospel works in our lives. God allows a bit of death, a bit of rot to come in. Because that has a way of just hollowing us out, hollowing us out of pride, hollowing us out of our self-sufficiency. And what it creates is these chambers that resonate the grace, the beauty, the mercy of God. And what's awesome is that when you play your Stradivarius, so to speak, there's a melody that's specifically tuned to someone's ears and that only you can reach. 
Your brokenness can be your commission through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what do you do with this great news? Two things. Embrace it every single day. Be gospel people. Preach gospel to your soul. Every time you feel like you're unlovable and rejected by God, remind yourself, it was never because I deserved it. God chose to love me, and he still does. Silence the rebuke, or rebuke the enemy. Silence the evil one. Every time he tries to put shame and rejection in your life, remind him, nothing will separate me from the love of God. Every time you feel like you've got to wear guilt, shame, depression, remember there is a place of ridiculous exchange. It's called the cross of Jesus Christ. And every time you feel like you're too broken to be used, remember God loves to make a commission out of your brokenness. He loves to make oak trees out of broken reeds. Second thing, proclaim it. Embrace the gospel at the first and then proclaim it. Play your Stradivarius on every hilltop you can find because there's someone waiting to hear it through your mouth, through your voice. All that to say, we are taking this message out to Los Angeles. The reason we're called Renew Church is right from this passage. It says that they will become dot, 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 renewers of the ruined city. My life is this story. Our core team is this story. It's broken people who are renewed by the gospel and therefore called to go renew a broken city. And that's us. And we will love your partnership. When you exit these doors, you'll find people in renew t-shirts and lanyards, um, people who are serving in various ways, prayer partners, um, intercessors, people who are going with us as a core. Uh, we need every level of partnership we can find, people who will pray, people who will give, people who will go. If you want to go or just find out more information, at 2 p.m. today in the 180 building, we'll have an interest meeting where you can find out more, ask questions, get to know me better. But thanks again for your partnership, and thank you. Um, for the prayers I know you'll pray.